We are on the home straight, as Emma said, on this series looking at the book of Ephesians towards the end of the, the New Testament. We've got one more week after this, so we, you've, held, you've held on for long enough over these last few weeks. Um, we are very near the end, and it's this beautiful book. We see the coming alive of the gospel message as we read Ephesians. If you haven't had the opportunity to read through the whole of Ephesians in one hit, please go and do it. Go and do it this week. Set yourself an hour or so and just watch the the beautiful story of the gospel come alive as you read Ephesians. It's incredibly powerful. And there's this reorientation of what the gospel is, what it means for us. What does it mean for the followers of Jesus? Not just what has God done, but how do we live out this life? How do we live life as, as a community, as a church, as a community of people doing family together. And if you remember the first half of this book, it unpacks the gospel message before the second half that we're focusing on today starts to speak at times in pretty uncomfortable ways to how we might live this out. Some of this feels jarring. Some of this feels painful. Some of this feels uncomfortable. And the the author of Ephesians makes no apology for that. And so we're going to dive into some of that this afternoon. And here's something that we should take away from this book. There is incredible truth that can be found in Ephesians. There is incredible truth, some hard-hitting stuff that should challenge us. It should convict us. It should make us aware of the flaws in our life and an aiming to do better, to understand what it looks like to live a life of holiness. And yet... And yet, it is never truth removed from love. It is never truth removed from love. It's not a truth that simply says, do better. You just need to be better. You're not good enough. You just simply need to be better. It's a truth that finds its origin in the fact that God has given himself for you, that he has given himself for me. It's a truth that that is born in love. It is a response to love. That is what this truth is that we read of in Ephesians. And the moment we divorce truth from love, the power, the depth of that love, we are in a world of trouble. We're in a world of trouble. And that's why many people outside of the church would look at the church and say that they're full of hypocrites. They're full of people who are simply judgmental, who are out to cause pain in me and in my life. In that same A group of people who made that research, Barner, that that had one in three people uh, are likely to be open to the person of Jesus, which is why, by the way, pray for three people in in advance of Alpha. Ask three people and expect two of them to say no, but maybe one of them will say yes. Don't just go with the one-hit wonder. Pray for three, ask three, and see what happens as a result of that. But a few years ago, they did a similar piece of research where they asked a bunch of people outside of the church, what is it that you think of when I tell you um, the word church, when you think of the people who are in a church, what do you think of? And there were a a bunch of of photos that they could choose and they could click one of them. And there were some weird pictures. You had had your kind of worshippers, you had their hands in the air and that got a few votes. You had your kind of quiche and and coffee situation going on. You had your your person with the dog collar at the front. And then there was one picture of, of somebody holding a Bible and pointing down. And nearly a third of people said, that's what I think of when I think of the church. I see someone holding the Bible and looking down on me and saying, this is who you need to be. This is who you need to be. If we divorce truth from love, if we rip it out of context, if we don't see it as an overflow of what God has done for us, as an overflow of a life lived 
towards him and pointed towards him, we are in a world of trouble. And that's confronting when we look at a passage like this one that we have today, because this book has stuff that should challenge us. It should challenge us. We should find it uncomfortable. And that's why we need the Spirit of God to convict. We need the Spirit of God to guide us. And certainly not just me convicting the rest of us in this room or challenging us on my own and in my own strength, in my fragility and in my hypocrisy. So I think we need to pray. So let's start by doing that. Maybe you want to close your eyes and we're going to say, Spirit of God, I thank you that you're here. I thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you're already moving. But I want to ask now, would you increase your presence amongst us? We don't just want to know you, Lord. We want to live the way that we were created to be. We want to step into the fullness of who we were made to be. And so, Lord, we we make ourselves available to you now. We're attentive to your spirit. Would you come? Amen. Amen. Right, we're going to jump around a little bit. We've got a mahusive passage today. So it's the second half of Ephesians 4 and the first half of Ephesians 5. If you've got a Bible or if you've got a phone in front of you, click onto that. So the second half of Ephesians 4, first half of Ephesians 5. But we're going to be starting near the end of our passage today. We're going to be starting at Ephesians 5, chapter, um, verse 8 to 17. And it says this, For you were once darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Live. As children of light, for the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And this is why it said, Wake up, sleeper. Wake up. Wake up. Sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Wake up. Wake up. Welcome to church, by the way, if this is your first time here. It's not always this heavy. It's often this intense, but it's not always this heavy. Wake up. Do you know how you were made? Do you know what you were made for? Do you know how you were made to live? And before we go anywhere in this part of Ephesians today, we have to embrace our identity. Before we can get to anything else, we have to know, we have to understand, we have to get acquainted with the identity that is put on us, to embrace our identity as people who were once darkness, but now are light. You are found in the Lord. You are found hidden in the wing, under the shadow of the wings of God. A couple of months ago, we were in this um, series, The Beauty of the Gospel. It was really cool. And, and one of the weeks, we were looking at adoption. What does it look like to be adopted into the family of God? And we looked at these beautiful uh, couple of verses from 1 John 1. It says this, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. As we're adopted into the family of God, we are seen differently. You change. 
You change from someone who walks in darkness into someone who walks in glorious light. In other words, this this isn't an optional extra. This isn't for just the little bits of you. Um, This isn't divine therapy for the little bits of you that just need a little bit more of Jesus. You change status from someone who was operating in darkness to someone who is a child of light. You belong to the Lord. You are adopted into a family where as a son, as a daughter of the Most High, we are inheritors, inheritors of the fullness of the kingdom. It's pretty cool. And yet for some of us, we walk into church today or we click online today and we feel pretty grotty. We don't really feel all of those good things. We don't feel like we're full of light, like we're radiating light to everyone that we walk past. We feel undermined in our identity. We're not quite on a level footing of who it is that God says that we are, but you are a child of God. You were made to radiate his love. And light dispels darkness. Darkness has no place where light exists. Wherever you go, wherever you walk, whatever environments you step into, darkness flees because you are someone who radiates the light of God. And yet, and yet, when we jump back into this passage and we go up a little little bit, a few verses to the middle of chapter four, we read of something that I think we can all relate to, living in a city like London at a time like this, and that is that there is incredible power in proximity. The proximity of the the things we get near, the people that we hang out with, the values that we adopt, the lifestyle that we lead, the priorities that we set in our own lives. And, And we shouldn't be naive to the power of that proximity and what it has, the power that it has in our lives. And that shouldn't shock us. If anything, I find that deeply comforting that I may know that I'm a child of God. I may know that I was made to live in light. And yet, yet, the same things trip me up again and again and again. Why is it that the same patterns swing round again and again? Why is it when I hang out with this person, I fall into the same way of thinking again and again? Why is it that when I get back into that relationship, I become someone I never wanted to be? I never thought I would be that person? Why is it that when I'm in that office environment, I always get drawn into the same chat, the same same banter, the same memes start flying around, the same gifts about the same people? I never meant to be that person. And it says this in verses 17 to 19. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Just don't live like them. That's not what you were made for. Don't live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as so to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. Don't live as the Gentiles do. Don't live as many Londoners do. Don't live as many people in your office might do. Don't live as many people in your halls might do. You were made to live differently. You're a child of God. You're a child of light. And yet there is a battle for your attention. There is a battle for your proximity. Have we nurtured? Have we cultured? cultivated 
this intimacy with God, or have we settled for less than we are made for? Have we managed to get ourselves close to something that isn't just bad for us, but might be leading us slowly but surely towards death? Welcome to church. This is your first time. It's heavy. Proximity. Proximity matters. I want to talk to you about Morris. Now, Morris, I have a real love-hate relationship with. Now, Morris is a mouse. Morris is a mouse who lives in our house. Now, our daughters would love to think that Morris is a pet of ours. I can tell you for sure, Morris is not a pet. I hate Morris. I kind of love Morris at the same time. I think he's an evil genius, and I don't know how to get rid of Morris. I just simply don't know how to do it. He's been there for months. He is a total genius. We started with the kind of humane trap situation at a futile. Nothing. He wasn't interested in any of that. Um, he, he wasn't having any of it. We, we started to, to move towards the mouse people, you know, the pest control folks. Um, nothing. They, they, he just had the poison and moved on. He's like some kind of absolute machine. And so we thought we need to move this to the next level. We need to shift our our roles kind of over to traps. That was all just to really let you know, if you're feeling a little bit offended or or squeamish about this, we kind of thought about doing some humane stuff. But really, I just, I really want Morris to die. I just think you need to know that. I want Morris gone. So we wanted to know where to put these traps. Are we going to put them in the right places? And so we started filming Morris. So we'd set up a camera every night. And we just see him. This is how we know it's only one. We named him Morris, by the way. He didn't tell us that was his name. And we just set up this camera. He loved that. Sam loved that gag. Um, we set up this camera, and we just would see the routes that he would run, and we were like, brilliant. This is where we're going to put our traps, right in, the, in his running line, so that he's just going to be, you know, he's going to be a sucker for it. So anyway, we put these traps down. We put peanut butter on it. We come the next morning. The peanut butter is gone, and Morris is fine. He's absolutely fine. He's gone back to his home. So we're now feeding Morris. It's not that we're just trying to kill Morris. We're feeding Morris. He starts to to goad us. And and this is where proximity matters. Here's the link, guys. Here's the proximity matters. I'm I'm kind of the evil Satan in this story, but I'm just goading. I really want Morris to come to me because I'm going to get him. I want to trap him. I want Morris gone from my life, guys. I need Morris gone from my life. Proximity matters. And this is where friends started worrying about us. They said he's in our heads. <laughs> you be the judge. You be the judge. I don't think he is, but I think he might be. Um, he started goading us. He started kind of just taking our stuff and, 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 and getting out of the way. We started moving towards sticky pads, the old um, the glue pads. Uh, we, we didn't go for any of the Amazon stuff. That's more for mice. We went for the rat stuff. Went for the heavy-duty stuff. Again, he wanted absolutely none of it. And this is where it starts to unravel. So we've got the wonderful Hannah, who's part of our family at the moment, living with us. And whilst Morris didn't want anything to do with the, the sticky pads, with the glue pads, Hannah did somehow get unstuck, that's not meant to be a gag, by these sticky pads. She walked straight downstairs into the kitchen, put her foot on it, screams out... We've now got stickiness on Hannah's foot. We don't know what to do. She starts jumping around. She's moving all over the shop. We had to get her sat down, putting her feet into a water bath for hours in order to get rid of the sticky stuff from it. Morris lives on as a child of the light. And yet Hannah, metaphorically speaking, got way too close to death for her own liking in this story. Proximity. Proximity matters. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's the one that we've got today. Back to the passage It says this, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And the futility of their thinking, it speaks to this like aimlessness, this hopelessness, a complete pointlessness 
to the way of living. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality. Losing all sensitivity, it speaks to this hardening of heart, where we don't even know the impact of what we're doing anymore. We don't even realize what we're doing and the impact it has not only on other people, but on ourselves. And there's this combination of hopelessness and desensitization that goes on where we just give up the fight. We don't have the fight anymore. You just let yourself act in whatever way you feel, whatever way will make you feel better in the short term. Think of two pedals on a bike. On the one hand, you've got hopelessness, this desensitization that's going on all the time, and that leads us to to carry out behaviors, sin essentially, that we know doesn't help us, and yet in the short term makes us feel a little bit better, and that in itself makes us feel more hopeless. It desensitizes us even more, and this cycle goes on and on. We're desensitized. We feel hopeless. We feel futile in our thinking. We start behaving in the wrong ways, and that makes us feel even more hopeless, and we go on and on in a way that we simply cannot pull ourselves out of the cycle. Many would would call that an addiction, where we can't pull ourselves out. We need an intervention. It's been said that addiction borrows happiness from tomorrow, in order for you to experience it for now. But I would say this is way worse than that. It's not just borrowing happiness or or, or robbing us of joy from tomorrow. It is robbing us of life. We edge nearer and nearer to death itself. It says this in Romans, the wages of of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But... But, and there is a very important but in the middle of that verse, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The the wages of sin is death. And yet, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is something that we have in our life that requires an intervention, and it is quite the intervention that is on offer. It says this earlier in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, it says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The intervention is that I, that you, that we have been made new. We've been made alive, children of light, even in the midst of the closeness of death. Even when we experience the death that is around us. We were made to be people of light. That is what God has done for us. It is absolutely extraordinary. And as our passage goes on, that enables us to, says this, put off your old self, take off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness And holiness. There is an activity we are being invited into. There is an activity on offer in partnership with the Spirit to take off an old self, to remove an old story that we have, and to put on a new self, to live as a saint in righteousness, in holiness. That is what is on offer with the Spirit. You won't be able to do it yourself. If you try and do this on your own, You're going to come up against the brick wall again and again and again. It requires an intervention. The intervention comes from the Spirit. 
There is an activity we are being invited into. And that leads us to the meat of this sandwich in in Ephesians 4 and 5, which is the pursuit of purity, of purity, to live a life of holiness, a life worthy of the one that we were called to. And we're going to dive into what the rest of these verses in chapter 4 say in a moment. But I just want to say a couple of qualifying things. I mentioned earlier about how easy it is for the church to be seen, known, experienced as, as hypocritical, as judgmental. And you wouldn't have to, to go far, you wouldn't have to look far to know that if we're really honest, many of those suspicions will absolutely be realised and be true. Church is, is full of flawed people, mostly trying their best to figure this, this stuff out. And at their worst, we're hurting people along the way as we go on that journey. It's not hard to, to, you don't have to look far to see church leaders, to see church cultures, which propagate some of the worst beliefs or expectations that we have of the pain that can be caused by the church. And yet, there is something extraordinary about what the church is called to be. The church is the bride of Christ. It is blameless, holy, pure. There is something that is worked out in communities, just like this one, in families like this, which is incredible. It is holy. It is extraordinary. It's unmatched. It is unrivaled. But I I want you to know that in this moment, as hopefully every other moment, to be fair, I'm simply a fellow follower of Jesus trying to figure this stuff out with my own baggage, with my own hypocrisy, with my own fragility and the stuff that I get wrong. And secondly, I want to do a mini theology seminar, which I think you weren't expecting that kind of gear shift at this point. <laughs> a mini um, theology seminar on, on the, de- the doctrine of salvation. Now, the- theologians will speak of the difference in terms of what salvation is when we think of uh, justification and when we think of sanctification. Uh, the, the, the sal- salvation being the saving act of God towards the, his, his creation, his people, everything that we know of and see in creation. Now, justification is what happens in an instant. When faith is put in Jesus, when the lordship of Christ is declared over your life, over systems, over structures, over peoples, over nations, then, then justification happens in an instant. Someone is saved. They move from being a child of darkness into a child of light. That's what we were reading about earlier on. But sanctification, that is something that is worked out over time. That is something that we figure out each and every day when we wake up and we move from one degree of glory to the other is what it says in 2 Corinthians. Sanctification is how we live this stuff out. It's the the process by which we grow closer and closer into the person that we were made to be. And why does this matter? Well, we seek a moment of justification of that kind of salvation in the world. That is what we preach. We preach Jesus to the world, and yet we seek sanctification within the church. There is an assumption that we all know and love Jesus in this room and we're trying to go on this journey of figuring out how is it that we reflect our lives? How do we order our lives in the most obvious way that reflects that glory that God has put onto us? But we also know that as as the people of God, we can fall into the trap of preaching sanctification to a world who doesn't know Jesus yet. And that is hypocritical. That is when you start to list off a whole bunch of rules, a whole bunch of of ways of living that the world doesn't understand because it doesn't know who Jesus is. We're setting them up to fail immediately. 
We're setting them up to have pain in their hearts and their experience of what church is from the beginning. And sanctification is what the rest of these verses is going to focus on, a pursuit of purity. Communicated in the wrong way, ripped out of context, it reads as a list of rules, a set of demands of what it takes to experience the love of God, but it is totally the reverse of that. It is in response to the love of God that we live a life of holiness. It is in response to what Jesus has done that we devote the entirety of our lives to him, that we point every part of our lives towards him. In other words, what you do indicates the posture of your heart. It does. The way we live our lives, it indicates something of who we're living for, the end that we're living for. What is it that we long to see happen in our lives that starts to find its way out in the behaviors and the actions that we have? And and how we nurture those practices of purity has an impact not just on yourself, but on everyone around you as well. This isn't just a solo task. We're trying to live this out together as a family as well. And crucially, crucially, Ephesians just doesn't give you a list of stuff that you shouldn't do. It starts to give you an invitation of what it looks like to do this well. This isn't just a list of don'ts. This is a list of invitations that says, this is what it looks like. This is, this is the, what, what's on offer. This is a glimpse of what it looks like to have a community that's healthy, that is pursuing Jesus entirely. So what does it say? It says this, I've summarized this, but uh, we're going to go through this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to feel quite punchy. I just want to name that. And just notice that. Notice what, what is it that kind of stings in you when you hear this list. And that's not just a process over the next few minutes. That's something to walk away with and be like, wow, God, what are you doing? Why am I finding that hard? Is it because I've had that experience to me? Someone has done that to me? Is it because I know there's some truth in that? And I would long for that to not be what you're asking of me, God. And yet I know that you're trying to prune something in me. You're trying to convict me of something. Just be curious for what that is. Speaking lies, don't lie. Don't align yourself with the father of lies. That's what Satan was called. Instead, speak truth. Speak truth. Radiate truth with the words that you have. You've been given this incredible power to speak words over things, over people, over relationships. Speak truth. Lingering anger. Get rid of it. Instead, don't don't let the sun go down whilst you're still angry because that will give the devil a foothold to increase bitterness, resentment in your life. Instead, just get rid of unhelpful anger. Nothing wrong with anger, by the way. Righteous anger, holy anger is a really good thing. But when that creates an opportunity for the enemy to have a field day in your life, you know that you need to deal with it. You need to process it. You need to do something with that. Still, don't just consume. Contribute. Serve others. Bring the gifts. Bring the resources that you have. Would they be something that you can serve others with? Unwholesome talks, stop slagging people off behind their back. Just stop doing it. It's not helpful. It doesn't build other people up. It tears them down. It tears them down. Slanderous talk, really similar. Speak with kindness. Bitterness, don't be bitter, but be quick to forgive. We assume, by the way, with bitterness that that actually helps us process something and maybe eventually the other person will figure out that they've been wrong. And we don't realize that bitterness erodes something in us, continually erodes something in us, how we see other people. 
how we see our relationship with them. Stop being bitter. Be quick to forgive. Have no hint of sexual immorality, but be God's holy people. Don't have a hint of it. Don't even entertain it. Don't even have a small amount of being risky um, when it comes to your, your, your sexual desires and your sexual actions. Don't even come close to it. That's not how holy people were made to be. Devote yourself and your body entirely to God. Don't sleep around. Don't get yourself hooked on porn. Don't find yourself objectifying your brothers and sisters around you. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember that. If you're married, honor your spouse. Love your spouse. Devote yourself and your body to God. If you're single, don't mess people around. Don't play games. Devote yourself. Devote your body to God. If you're a guy, don't treat women badly. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. It's not kind. It's not what we were made to be. Don't play games. Devote yourself. Devote your body to God. If you're a woman, don't put your brothers down. They're trying. They're not getting it right every time, but they're trying. Don't believe that you have to be something desirable for someone else. Devote yourself. Devote your body to God. Don't have a hint of sexual immorality, but be God's holy people. Don't speak with obscenities. Speak with thanksgiving. Don't just say stuff because it helps you feel better in a moment. Speak with thanksgiving about people. Speak with thanksgiving about situations, about the things that we have around us. Drunkenness. Don't get drunk on something that will almost certainly bring out the worst in you and instead be filled with the Spirit who will always shower you with gifts for the purposes of his kingdom. Don't get drunk on stuff that's going to accentuate the worst parts of you. Filled with the Spirit of God because he will bring out the best in you for the purposes of his kingdom. Welcome. This is your first time to church. It's heavy. It's heavy. And there is no condemnation in Christ. Let's just remember that. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation in Christ. I heard something this week that really tickled me. I've got 99 problems, but Romans 8.1. <laughs> That's right. There is no condemnation in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. But what there is, what there is is conviction of the Spirit. And there is a subtle difference between the two of those. If you feel condemned right now, if you're experiencing shame because of this list, that is not the purpose of this. But if you're feeling convicted in the spirit, there is something I want to change in my life, that's a really, really good thing. That's a really, really good thing. And there is a subtle difference between the two. Condemnation will cause you to hide. Condemnation will say, God, I don't want anything to do with you in this. I don't want, I don't want to talk to anyone about this. But conviction says, I want to be closer to you, Jesus. I want to be drawn towards you so that you might do something in my life, so that you might transform me from one degree of glory to the next. And just notice this, on the left-hand side, all of those actions build up the self. All of that says, I'm at the center of the story, and if I feel better, then hey-ho, we've won. And Martin Luther will often say at KXC, sin is defined as a life turned in on itself. The left-hand side is is a world where you become the center of the story. The right-hand side is where suddenly others become the center of the story. Not just God, although that's absolutely true, but community. What does it look like to serve one another? What does it look like to build one another up? That's what this passage is all 
about. An end that we should see when we're doing this stuff well is unity. Not just going on a journey together, but being one as we do it. This should draw us together as brothers and sisters. And my, my hope and prayer today is that the Spirit would want to do something in us. For some, that will be conviction. Like, jump on that. Don't lose this, this moment. Don't walk away from this opportunity. If there's something on there that you're like, I know this is, is something that I've been getting too close to. There is an opportunity today with no judgment, with no condemnation to, to come up to the front and literally say, Lord, I'm here. I want to meet with you. I want to confess that, maybe just in your heart, to Jesus. And he says, I'm here. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to fill you. I give you my presence. For others, you might just simply need to know, I, I want to be renewed and, and reminded that I am a child of God, that I'm someone who was made to, to radiate light. And I know that I've been in situations. I know that I've been in places. I know that I've been near people who have robbed me of that. I've got closer to moments and, and, and places and experiences of death than I would have ever wanted to, hoped, or imagined. And you simply want to devote yourself again to God and say, God, I'm, I'm here. I'm yours. I want every part of my life to be yours. Yours.